This is They Create Worlds, episode 106, The Small Voice of Magnavox. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, we thought we could do it in one episode, but really, we know how this all goes. You get two episodes about this thing. I was naive. I am always naive. I just start talking, Jeff, and words come out. I don't know how to stop them. Well, we can do some more words because this is the episode that comes out on January 15th. As things are going on, we got a contest going on. That's right, we do. So, uh, for those of you that don't know, They Create Worlds isn't just a podcast and a never-updated blog anymore. It's also a book from CRC Press. Available now, direct from the CRC Press website, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, other major online retailers. And to celebrate this momentous event, we are giving books away. We went in detail on this last time, but just to recap... We are having a contest uh, with our Patreon members. Anyone who's charged by February 1st is considered a Patreon member for this contest, charged by February 1st and a current member in good standing. And then we are having a second giveaway to anyone that registers for the contest by midnight GMT February 1st. The number of books that we give out will vary depending on registrations. We're looking to do one per every 25 entries up to a maximum of four for that one. Patrons can double dip by also registering for the general contest to get two shots at the apple, two bites at the apple. Patrons are automatically entered. You don't have to re-register. That's correct. We'd be giving away a minimum of two books, a maximum of five books signed by both of us. The book's by me, but the podcast is a very important part of all this, and Jeff's a very important part of this podcast. So that's going on. Register by midnight GMT, February 1st. And where can the good people go to register again, Jeff? They can go to theycreateworlds.com slash giveaway. There you have it. Go ahead, register, free book. We are opening it up internationally, but we do reserve the right to rescind the prize if the shipping ends up being a ridiculous number. Sorry that international shipping can sometimes be so complicated, but we do want to include everybody because we have great international listeners as well and don't want them to be left out. So other than that one caveat and the caveat about we don't know how many books there are going to be, enter, win, have fun. Since we got the uh, bookkeeping out of the way, pun intended, we were talking about Magnavox where they came from, where they're going, how they made this wonderful odyssey and all of this great stuff. And then we had to stop and we were sad. Yes. Just as a brief recap, or not a recap, but more of a reminder, I've talked enough already to put a recap in on top of everything else. We left the story right in the transitional period. Magnavox had been first to the market with the original Odyssey by Ralph Baer. Now everyone's getting into the market in the 1975-1976 time frame. Magnavox is being forced to adapt. The first thing they did to try to adapt is go to their Odyssey 100 and 200 models with medium-scale integration circuits from Texas Instrument, 
Their second attempt to kind of get with the times was to also hedge their bets and create a system, the Odyssey 300, using one of the new LSI Pong on a chips coming out, the most popular one from General Instrument. This is kind of where we left the story in the 76 time frame. One thing I didn't talk about when we were doing the very last bit of this that I want to go back and talk about is the way that the retail picture was changing for the company. We touched on it very lightly, but we did not go into detail. As you may recall from the previous episode and way back in our uh, Magnavox Odyssey episode covering the original system a couple years back, the original Odyssey was originally only available through authorized Magnavox dealers that exclusively sold Magnavox products, primarily televisions and stereos. The logic behind this was that Magnavox had this new thing, the video game that no one had ever seen before, because at this time they really did have the only one, and they were hoping that people would be wowed by this new technology, they would come into the store, they would look at this new technology, they'd be so impressed, and then they would walk out with not just a brand new video game, but also a brand new Magnavox TV. Well, by 1976, this just isn't tenable anymore. In 1974, they loosened up a little. We mentioned this last episode. They did deign to allow the Sears catalog to carry the system, not Sears retail locations, just the catalog. By 1975, when they're doing their new systems, the 100 and 200, they know Atari's coming. They know National Semiconductor's coming at some point. They know other companies are getting involved in this business. So the Odyssey 100 and 200, they never restrict in that way. Those things are mass market from the beginning, as mass market as they can get, because as we said last time in that first holiday season, they were constrained by chip delays, delays in Texas Instrument finishing those chips up, so they didn't get them to retail until November. But it was a mass market release, not a Magnavox dealer release. Another thing that happened uh, at the tail end of the year, 1975, is that Bob Frisch, who had been shepherding the Odyssey product line as the product planner from almost the beginning, he was not there from the beginning of the testing phase, but he did become the product planner before the release of the original Odyssey in 72 and remained the product planner through all of these early years, leaves the company in late 1975. He's replaced by another product planner named John Helms. Helms really does everything he can to pivot Magnavox, because this dealer strategy of theirs was just not working. I mean, they did do some fun things with it. We talked about how by 1974 they were offering a Magnavox Odyssey half price when you bought it with a brand new Magnavox television. We talk about how they also started a private label program at that time where they would actually put Odysseys in other people's TV products as a way of trying to expand the base a little bit. But John Helms really starts moving in heavily on mass market retailers and on the toy industry. He actually brings the Odyssey systems to Toy Fair in early 1976, which is kind of the first time that Magnavox has really tried to court toy buyers and court that side of the industry. We talked about this a little bit because we talked a little bit about this ball and paddle market on a bigger level, but it's kind of a confusing time where toy buyers are not that involved yet because the sophistication of the electronics and even more importantly, the price of the product 
is just not something toy buyers are used to. And so a lot of toy buyers were very skittish about getting involved with video games. You had electronics departments, consumer electronics departments, which really didn't go by that name at that time because your consumer electronics were basically just televisions and stereos. And I guess at this point, you're getting some very early LaserDisc and very early VTR systems as well, which is what they were calling VCRs back then. They called them videotape recorders at the start before kind of the video cassette recorder thing took off. So there isn't much of a consumer electronics market, but there are electronics departments in major stores. And so sometimes it's the electronics department doing it. Then sometimes it's completely off the wall, like at Sears, where you had the sporting goods department doing it, because ping pong is kind of like a ping pong table. So why not just put it in with the rest of the sporting equipment and have fun there? Right. So you've got this kind of confusion, but Magnavox is taking the lead. One of the companies taking the lead in trying to get this into toy departments, Coleco, which comes on strong in 1976, of course, is the the really big one there because they're a toy company. So, of course, they're used to dealing with toy buyers. That's what Helms is doing. I mean, I don't know much about Helms. I don't know much about what he did at the company, but definitely one of the priorities under his watch is that they were trying to get this product more mass market. So we talked about how in 1976 they had their Odyssey 300, which was their general instrument Pong on a chip system, and then the 400 and the 500, which were the evolution of their custom chip designs. They did about half a million that year, as we said last time, which was not as impressive then as it would have been a year or two ago, but it was still good for third or fourth place. So, I mean, they're doing okay. But they're owned by Philips now. Philips purchased Magnavox in September 1974. Both the Magnavox Consumer Electronics Management, which is still in place, Alfred DeCipio, whom we discussed a little bit last time, the marketer in charge of the Consumer Products Division, is still there after the Philips buyout. And the Magnavox Consumer people in the U.S., the Philips people, you know, this video game thing, it's a lot of effort and not a lot of result, I guess, from their perspective. Early technology of any kind is usually fraught with a lot of technical difficulties, a lot of problems, a lot of challenges, and cost high amounts of money. Moore's Law. Longer it goes on, the stuff gets cheaper and better because, oh, we solved this problem already. Well, now we're just down to refinement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of companies getting involved in the business at this point. The whole Pong on a chip thing just really ignites the whole market. Near as I can tell, it's mostly outsiders looking in, outsiders like Ralph Baer, who still kind of keeps track of what's going on at Magnavox, being a good example. It's a little bit of that kind of outsiders looking in, but it seems like there's a lot of hemming and hawing and confusion and do we really want to be here? Do we not want to be here? This is common when you get a company that is dealing in a business that's ancillary to their primary business. I mean, for a company like Magnavox or a company like Philips, video games are one of these things like, okay, if this works and we make a little more money, great, but we're a general electronics company. We specialize in televisions. So this is a side business for us. We're not going to bet the farm on it. We're not going to take huge risks in it because it's more about if we can make a little money without spending too much money, then this is a nice supplement 
Sort of like if the people who play the stock markets, Phillips is acting sort of like, I'm trying to just buy low, sell high, there for the big wins when things are good. Phillips is not in it for the long haul. They are not in it to just see the general trends of things changing and making a long, solid investment in this company. They're just in it for, where's my quick buck? Fantastic. I'm not dealing with you when you have problems. Pretty much. There's a lot of discussion in this time period as to whether Magnavox, and by extension its parent Philips, should continue in this business. The Magnavox Consumer Electronics Division, just as a whole, has not been doing all that well. This is the story of the entire U.S. television apparatus in this time period. At the start of the 1970s, most of the televisions in the United States were still being manufactured and sold by American companies. Motorola, RCA, Sylvania, Magnavox. By the end of the decade, the Japanese are just killing them. Sony, Mitsubishi, other of these Japanese companies that are coming in more and more. The same thing that happened in steel and in automobiles. We've talked about this in the context of Japanese video games, which, you know, of course, is something later in the 80s. But this idea that the Japanese are taking over all these markets. So Magnavox is not doing well. Magnavox can't afford to take a bath on this video game thing. And because Magnavox isn't willing to take huge risks on this video game thing, they're never going to be a market leader. You look at a company like Atari. Atari bet the farm on video games, on home video games, because Atari is a video game company. They were founded to be that. So they took the risk with Home Pong at a time when the Magnavox Odyssey had not excited the marketplace and there was no guarantee that a competing product, particularly a game that had become blasé in the arcade two years ago by that point, was going to be a hit. When they decided to do the VCS, they bet the farm on that too. They had to sell to Warner Communications because they needed money to do that product. And they took a big risk. There was no certainty that that product would resonate. But they were willing to make the big plays because that was their business. Magnavox stays in it, and we're going to, of course, talk about how they stay in it in the late 70s and early 80s. But there's never a big play there. It's very hesitant. It's very cautious. And when you're dealing in a realm of new technology, you just cannot be cautious like that. You have to take some risks to reap some rewards. So where does that leave us for 1977? Well, it's clear to Magnavox management that 1977 is going to be a big year for dedicated console systems. All the analysts are saying it. Spoiler alert, it doesn't quite happen that way. But all the analysts are saying 77 is going to be a big year. But everyone is also saying... Look at these new programmable things coming because, you know, Fairchild releases the Channel F late 1976. RCA releases its very poorly received Studio 2 at the beginning of 1977. Atari hasn't announced yet. Atari doesn't announce until June CES 77. But this movement is coming. And so they kind of also know that they're going to have to up their game a little bit if they want to keep going. So in 77, there are two parallel paths that the company decides to go down. 
first of all, they decide they have to say in dedicated video game systems, and there is no point in doing their own technology anymore. They are going to be eaten up on price and capability if they stick with their own technology, because by this point, it's a chip company's world. The chip companies put out the games, the microchips that have the games on them, and then all of the consumer manufacturing companies and the import companies, they just design or contract out some kind of case to put around them, decide which one of those games on the chip they actually turn on, and then put it loose in the marketplace. Magnavox completely abandons custom designs and completely goes with general instrument chips. They plan three new systems for 1977. The first two kind of continue this tradition that we talked about last time that they did in each of the last two generations, where they offer a comparable system with slight differences so that they can have one be a little cheaper and one be a little more expensive. That was the Odyssey 2000 and the Odyssey 3000. The main difference with these two games over the games from the year before is that they did add a fourth product. They're still using the same microchip that was in the Odyssey 300, that same Pong-on-a-chip kind of thing. But that system is capable of playing four different ball-and-paddle games as well as two target shooting games. None of the Odyssey systems ever implemented the target shooting games for whatever reason. But there's the tennis game, the hockey game, the squash game, and the one-player practice mode. The 300 only had three of them. The Odyssey 2000 and 3000 implement the fourth one. So that's the main difference. And this is not a strategy that's unique to Magnavox. You might think, okay, well, that's kind of dumb. I mean, what you're telling me is they didn't fully implement last year's product. And so now they think it'll be a great idea to do last year's product this year. Of course, that would be a fantastic idea, Alex. (laughs) Why not do it? And uh, exactly. I mean, it sounds silly on its face, but this is actually what a lot of companies did. I mean, this is similar to what Coleco did as well. I mean, all of these companies kind of figured that the way to do this was to start by implementing just a small number of games on the chip, which would be cheaper. And then once a market has developed, then the next year come in and implement more games on the chips. This is something that everybody was doing. So they weren't behind the curve on that. So that's the first two systems, the 2000 and 3000, implement all those games. The difference, the functional difference between the two is that the 3000 has more difficulty settings and it has detachable controllers, which are becoming more and more common. The very early games all had the controls directly on the game system. So both players kind of had to hunch right over the game system. It limited how far they could get from the television, yada, yada, yada. Even in 1976, you start seeing detachable controllers where they're connected by wires. Sometimes they're hardwired into the system. They're not truly fully detachable. Sometimes they're plug-in, like on later game systems. But either way, the idea of having a game controller attached to a console by a wire so you can actually take the controller further away from the console and further away from the television, that's something that you saw in only a very small number of systems in 1976 and is becoming more common in 1977. To be fair, the televisions back in the time were really, really small, and we were talking about before in the previous episode how all televisions were consoles, not 
console console like video game, but pieces of <laughs> furniture. Right. You literally sat in front of your television. So you're so close to that thing already. Why not just have the controls right on the console? That's very true. I mean, like you said, a lot of times kids would sit on the floor right in front of the television anyway. So that's not such a big stretch. Plus, of course, it's cheaper when it's all one piece. But a few systems experienced success doing detachable controllers in 76. So the Odyssey 3000 has detachable dial controllers in 1977. The 4000, the other system that they slated for that year, used the new chip from General Instrument. So General Instrument released a large number of new chips in 1977 to follow up on that AY38500 chip, the Pong on a chip that had been so popular in 76. One of those was the AY38600, which was their update on the ball and paddle chip. Basically, it could play a lot more games, eight games instead of four, and those games could be rendered in color. They did release kind of a color companion chip, I believe, for the 8500 as well. Very few companies used it. This time, color is native to the whole product. So that's the 4000. They have the 2000 and the 3000 following their normal pattern, and then they're using the brand new shiny chip, the 4000, for the real savvy consumer. So in parallel to that, though, they know that they need a programmable system as well. They start trying to figure out how they can have a programmable system as well, and they end up connecting with Intel. So the video game business is not something that Intel was ever particularly successful at getting involved in in this period. These days, coin-op systems are Wintel computers, essentially. So, I mean, Intel's all over the what remains of that part of the video game industry. And obviously, Intel chips are in all the Windows PCs. I mean, not all of them, but you've got AMD and stuff as well, but are in a lot of them. These days, they're huge. But in this early period, that's not something they ever really got involved in. You know, if you look at the early arcade games, and if you look at the early computers, and you look at the early video game consoles, it's mostly either 6502 based, which was the low cost variant of Motorola's 6800 processor. The 6502 was done by a different company, Moss Technology, but it was started as a project by a bunch of ex Motorola engineers to essentially create a low cost version of that 6800. Or they are Z80 based, the Z80 being an extension of Intel's 8080 processor that was done by one of the engineers of that processor, or the primary engineer of that processor, Federico Fagin, an Italian, who left Intel, founded his own company, Zilog, and created essentially a better version of the 8080 that was backward compatible. For those that were interested in using an Intel-like architecture in a video game, you had the Z80 to do that, because it was better than the 8080 microprocessor which was still kind of the frontline Intel processor at the time. You know, this is a tangent, but we talk about this in our IBM episode some. It's almost a fluke and a stroke of luck that Intel gets the PC business. And it's because they get the PC business that they become dominant Intel. Even though Intel created the microprocessor, Motorola, MOS Technology, and Zilog were getting far more play in the late 70s than Intel was in consumer products. 
you know, Intel had its big memory business, but the microprocessor, they were not really the leader in that. And they were being killed by a chip that was made by one of their own designers to be compatible with their main chip, that Z80. So Intel, in part, didn't get involved, at least according to, to Stan Mazur, who was one of the guys who really got them into microprocessors, because management didn't really see video games or games as something that was actually worth spending their time on. They're kids' toys. Who would want to spend buku amounts of money on little dots on a screen? Yeah, I mean, I guess they saw themselves more as serving big institutional and corporate and industrialized clients or something. I mean, I don't have all the details on that. But Stan Mazor has said that he was very interested in using a microprocessor in a video game capacity from just about the beginning. I mean, that's something that he saw as worthwhile, but that management really didn't so much. And in fact, he even had... He and Ted Hoff, the two people that were responsible for the preliminary design on the 4004 Intel's first processor, they actually had one of their co-workers, an engineer named Glenn Louie, recreate Space War using the 4004. Because uh, Mazor had been enamored with this since seeing Space War on a PDP-1 at the uh, Joint Computer Conference in Las Vegas in 1964. So he was excited about it, even if management was not. So Mazor rises to a position where he's kind of in charge of placing Intel chips into consumer products. And so he keeps an eye on the market, and one of his field reps learns that Magnavox is creating a console. So he ends up meeting with Gene Kale, the head of engineering on this programmable console project, and they end up getting along. And it turns out that Magnavox chooses to use an Intel chip called an 8048 for their programmable system. The uh, 8048 is not just a microprocessor. It's actually a microcontroller. It's a package deal that has an 8-bit processor running at 1.79 megahertz, has 1K of ROM built in, and it has 64 bytes of RAM built in. So it has little RAM and ROM caches directly on the chip as part of being a microcontroller. And then there's a companion chip, a RAM chip, providing an additional 128 bytes of memory. We're talking bytes here. This is all very early days, and so memory is slight. <laughs> For those who may not remember, bytes are smaller than kilobytes, which are smaller than megabytes, which are smaller than gigabytes. This is pretty much yes. the smallest we can get as far as computers are going. But we're still talking about more memory than the Atari VCS has. You know, that just had 128 bytes total. This has the 64 bytes on the processor as well as an additional 128 bytes off the processor. So... Still in that one dimension, a little more powerful than the BCS. They, just, of course, also need a graphics chip. Microprocessors are definitely, these very early microprocessors are not powerful enough to do the graphics load as well. The VCS has a custom graphics chip. The Intellivision has an, a custom graphics chip. They all do. So this one needs a graphics chip as well. And so Magnavox actually contracts with Intel to create a graphics chip. Gene Kale and his team at Magnavox define what they want to see, uh, and then a team of Intel engineers led by a guy named Peter Salmon creates the chip, which uh, they designate the 8244, Intel 8244. 
it's both a little more primitive and a little more powerful than what Atari has in the VCS. It can only display four sprites, independent moving objects, which is technically one less than the VCS. But it also has a character generator built in, which is something that the Atari system did not have. So that character generator had an additional 64 objects. Some of those objects were letters and numbers. You know, the letters of the alphabet, numbers, basic punctuation. But it also included a few objects as well. So there was a tree character in that set. There was a person character, a little stick figure character in that set. So this allowed for additional objects to be on the screen. On the VCS, the only objects you got were those five objects. Now, they figured out ways, as we've talked about before, to reuse objects. So there are plenty of VCS games. They have more than four or five things on the screen at once. But technically, you only have five objects to play with. The Odyssey 2, you have the four sprite objects to play with, and then you can have 12 characters from the character generator on the screen at the same time as well. So you actually have 16 objects to play with in most circumstances. Again, just like the VCS, you could use various tricks to reuse some of those objects per scan line. The backgrounds were also a little bit more sophisticated, I think, than the VCS. Uh, You know, the VCS, you could create a single background or you could basically what you would do is you would create a half screen background and then you could either mirror it on the other side or like reverse it or whatever. So you could play with it a little bit. But you kind of just had, to my understanding, a single background to play with per screen. If you had a game like Adventure or Pitfall that took place on multiple screens, each one of those screens could have a different background. But you kind of had a set pattern on the screen like that. The way the Magnavox treated its background is it treated the background as a grid of lines that divided the screens into segments. And you could turn off or on parts of that grid independently. So it allowed you to kind of have a little more flexibility with how you could shape your backgrounds. Though, just like on the VCS, the backgrounds were low resolution and very blocky. We're not talking about sophisticated backgrounds. That's kind of the gist of what you had in this system. Now, with those backgrounds, can you even do like a star field with that? No, no. I mean, if if you look at any of the games at this time appearing on consoles, backgrounds kind of have to be big, bold, and blocky. Because of that, you can't really do a star field. You're more talking about walls like you would see in a maze. That's why so many of the early games, whether they're VCS games or Magnavox games or what have you, tend to be set in mazes, because that's kind of the one thing these backgrounds were really good at doing, and they weren't really good at doing much of anything else. So really just lines and columns. Yeah. Mazes, like you said, or platforms or something like that. Not so much a star field or even a gradient line or something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's what you're looking at here. It did have some separate video RAM of 128 bytes as well. So it had more memory than the VCS. But remember that part of the reason that the VCS had so little memory is because they found ways to do things with updating the screen in real time where they didn't need a frame buffer and they didn't need video memory. Just because you can look at this and say, well, it has two and a half times the RAM as the VCS. That must mean it's two and a half times more powerful. 
that's not actually true because the VCS manages to do a lot with a little because it's not using any of its precious memory to draw the screen. Whereas some of these other systems that it was going up against was using some of its memory to draw the screen in addition to switching game elements in and out. Overall, the Odyssey, yeah, I think it's fair to say, not necessarily more powerful than the VCS. And it's definitely more constrained because one of the things that made the VCS so great, even though it wasn't necessarily fantastic, technologically speaking, is that they moved so much stuff to software, moved so much into the ingenuity of the programmers that they were able to do things with that system that the hardware should have never been able to do. And that made it an open and expansive system. The Odyssey 2 is a good example of a constrained system. It's a good idea in theory that you have a character generator, which Atari doesn't have, and that you use this character generator to generate additional objects on the screen, like trees and people. But part of the problem with that is you end up with games looking the same. Because if you need a tree, you're not going to use your background or one of your precious sprites for the tree. You're going to use the tree character. Even more critically, if you need a person, you're not going to animate sprites to create your own person. You're going to use the person that's already in the character generator. So it led Magnavox games to look very samey to each other. And it led them to look very stale after a while because his VCS programmers were finding more and more clever ways to reuse sprites and string sprites together and animate sprites to make games look more impressive over time. The Odyssey is stuck with the same boring, blocky stick people that it had way back in the late 1970s. So that's kind of the genesis of this project. And they had planned to have it out by 1977 by holiday 1977. So they were going to have their new dedicated lineup and their programmable both out in 1977. But as is always the case, just about every single time, the darn chips, particularly that custom graphics chip, just aren't coming together on the timetable that everyone wants them to. So now they're looking at delays. And as they're looking at delays and they're looking at a 1977 market, I'm not sure if at this point they could tell that the 1977 market was going to be soft for dedicated consoles. They may not have been able to tell yet. But I think there was already some forecasting starting to revise down by the summer for what that market was going to look like that year. Magnavox and Philips start getting really cold feet. And they very nearly cancel the programmable console. Ralph Baer personally takes some credit for saving it. Ralph Baer was an outsider, so he wasn't privy to everything that was going on. He certainly wasn't at the meeting where they changed their minds. But John Helms, apparently, whether this was just a flatter Baer and keep him working with them because they wanted to harness Baer and uh, his team to create some games for the system or whether it's really true, did say to him that he thinks that he was a big part of what saved the system. Basically, Ralph Baer learned from John Helms that management above him was looking to cancel the product. Baer flew out and did a presentation for Magnavox Management in uh, August 1977, somewhere around there. He told them about what they were doing with Coleco because they were working very closely with Coleco, even doing some design for them. 
course, he had the figures for what kind of licensing revenue they were getting from Coleco, because unlike a lot of other companies, Coleco had actually signed the license. And so he said, look, we're doing this with Coleco. It's going great. Look at all this money Coleco's making. You guys don't want to get out now because this business is blowing up and you don't want to miss out on that. So he gave his pitch, and a few days later, the word came down that they were going to keep going forward with the system. How much did he actually help versus how much he likes to think he helped? I honestly don't know, but it probably did play a role. I don't want to dismiss that entirely. And we talked about that before in a previous episode. I can't remember the one off the top of my head. Coleco? Did we talk about Coleco? We've talked about Coleco a little bit, yeah. We have not done our epic two-part Coleco episode yet. One of these days we will. I have a lot of good information on Coleco. Talk to some interesting people there. We do mention Coleco from time to time and Ralph Bear's involvement with Coleco from time to time. Absolutely. So they keep it going, but it's not going to be ready for 1977. They have to delay that system to 1978. I don't know at what point they decided to do this, but they decide to take a unique track with it. By this time... Home computers have arrived. You've had the first wave of hobbyist kits that came out in 75, 76, and now in 1977, you've had the Trinity, which, of course, we had a whole episode on. The VIC-20, the Apple II, the TRS-80, all coming out. There's a lot of confusion in the market. The video game business did not do well in 1977. Dedicated consoles, new dedicated consoles just kind of crashed in the market. Lower-priced products and higher-priced products did okay. The middle was hollowed out. Computers are coming. People are talking about home computers as being the future of things. And there's kind of a pivot across the entire console industry, such as it is, towards viewing consoles as computer trainers. There are a few different companies that went this route. In television, when Mattel first marketed in television, they very heavily marketed it as a beginning computer because they had been planning to release a keyboard component right away along with the system. Didn't happen for a variety of reasons, but all of their early marketing was focused on Intellivision as a trainer computer. APF, an electronics importer that we haven't really discussed very much, but they were big in the dedicated console business, and they also tried their hand at the programmable market. They released a docking station for their programmable console system to turn it into more of a computer. You had the Bally Home Computer Library, the Bally Professional Arcade, which later became the Astrocade, that was touted as a computer, a low-cost home computer right out of the box. You had this entire move. Even Atari, even though they don't do much with the VCS, they released some keyboard, primitive keyboard controllers. They're not a keyboard like a typing keyboard, but they call them keyboard controllers. But even Atari moves into the home computer market and decides that their next generation console needs to be both a console and a computer. They both end up being computers, the Atari 400 and the 800, but as initially conceived, it was going to be a game console and a computer. So the whole industry is going this way, and it, it turns out to be a blind alley because it turns out that People don't really want these hybrid in-between systems because they feel like they're either overpaying for a video game console or underpaying for a really weak and puny computer. And so this entire track ends up being a dead end. APF doesn't do well and television completely pivots back into video games. The Bally system doesn't do that well. 
but Magnavox is creating their programmable system right in the middle of this time period. And so they actually decide to have a built-in keyboard. They're not going full computer. They're not doing disk drives and printers and all of this stuff. But they do decide that they're going to put a keyboard on it. And again, it's one of these non-touch type, non-mechanical... Membrane keyboard. Membrane keyboards, exactly. But they want to kind of capture that educational market and kind of computer trainer market. And they think this is something that can give them a leg up on something like the VCS as well. So they attach, I mean, not attach because it's all built in. It's one block. It's not like you plug the computer in. They include a QWERTY layout membrane keyboard as well, which is one of the things that sets the system apart a little bit, though not in a way that's really useful at all. (laughs) That system finally comes out at the end of 1978. But by the time it comes out, there's already been even more upheaval in the company because Magnavox is not well during this time period. We have to remember that. This is a company that is still trying to find a new identity for itself after losing its identity in console stereos and, and televisions. So John Helms saves the system. He manages to convince his superiors to stay in the market. but. He leaves the company just a month or so later. He's gone. There's a period of time where there's really nobody, near as I can tell, that is kind of directly looking out for Odyssey interests. There's a guy named uh, Frank Quota, a weird name I know, but his last name's actually Quota, who is kind of a broader manager of video products that's kind of looking after it. And his boss, John Fouth, who's the senior VP of products and marketing. So another step up the chain who reports directly to Decipio, who's still there as head of consumer electronics. But there really isn't a product planner for a few months that's specifically dedicated to the video game. And so they end up kind of taking that business and combining it with their nascent Laserdisc and Videotape Recorder, VTR, which is what VCRs were called in the early days, as I said, business. And they create a new division called Interactive Devices. The idea is anything that you have that you plug into your television and fiddle with in some way are now going to be a division. So video games are no longer their own thing with their own product guy. It's part of a larger business headed up by another executive named Mike Staup, S-T-A-U-P. Staup is probably how it's pronounced, could be Stop. I don't know. That's kind of where things end up. And then in early 1978, April 1978, Alfred DiCipio, this marketer that has led the Magnavox consumer division since almost the time that the Odyssey was launched, he came in very soon after the original Odyssey was launched, he resigned suddenly. And so there's a new guy at the very top at Magnavox named Kenneth Menken, uh, who comes in in April 1978. You have management changes, you have combining of divisions, and you just have this timidity continuing. They were going to do another dedicated console project in 1978, the Odyssey 500, which was going to be like a 24-game system using a chip from Signetics, which was a Fairchild spinoff that Philips, Magnavox's parent, had actually bought. So they were looking for some synergy there. 
and they had this video game thing. They had a small in-house team, and they were going to contract with Sanders to do some games, et cetera, et cetera. And then they end up shutting down internal video game development entirely. They never really work with Magnavox. They completed some games before they shut down internally. But it's kind of like it's being shuffled around. It's being moved. There's still a disconnect trying to get video games recognized within the company. And it's the same disconnect that's been causing them a lot of problems trying to get established in this business. Because they don't have anyone championing the console. You don't have anyone saying, hey, this is great. And then everyone else goes, well, that's not my baby that I want to have succeed. So that can be someone else's problem. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of that going on. I mean, at the low level, there's enthusiasm. Bob Frisch was always enthusiastic about it. Mike Staup is actually very enthusiastic about it. But once you get the next step up the chain, guys like DeCipio and Mencken, who are just trying to keep the lights on and are facing their own pressures from their corporate parent, Phillips, who could, quite frankly, decide to just eliminate this Magnavox thing and merge it with other Phillips operations whenever they want. There's a lot of pressure there and there's a lot of confusion there. And I can't say definitively, uh, some of this is very much speculation on my part, but it feels like that environment is probably not the most conducive to make this entire video game thing work. And that's why they try to cancel the system. They end internal development. They do all of these things that just stop it from ever being able to get more than just the smallest foothold in the marketplace. That takes us to the Odyssey computer video game system, which eventually has its name changed to the Odyssey 2 or Odyssey Squared, because the 2 in Odyssey 2 is a superscript on the name. It's not like the PlayStation 2, where it's a number 2 directly next to to PlayStation. So Odyssey 2 or Odyssey Squared, however you want to call it, it's announced in June 1978. They had announced before that that they were working on a system, but in June 1978, CES is when they actually debut the product that is going to be released. And then it starts shipping to retailers in September of 1978. It follows a similar playbook with its games as systems from competing companies like Fairchild and Atari. All of the early game systems kind of have a few different areas that they always had games in, most of which were, quite frankly, very uninteresting. There's a reason that video games didn't start really getting popular in the home after the home pong crash until Space Invaders hit big, because all the early stuff was just kind of dumb. It retailed for $180, which put it kind of comfortably in between the suggested retail prices of the Fairchild Channel F and the Atari VCS. It was a little more expensive than Fairchild's, but arguably also a little more capable. It was a little cheaper than Atari's system, even though I wouldn't say it was in any way more capable. In some ways, it was even less capable than the Atari system. They hoped that the keyboard and the whole computer aspect would help it stand out. It came with one cartridge. That was a three games in one cartridge. It had two racing games on it. At this time, there were basically two racing game paradigms in the arcade, which we talked about in our driving game episode. You had the Grand Track 10 paradigm, where it's a single screen, and there's a really curvy track that you maneuver around the whole screen in, and so it's all about a lot of twists and turns and maneuvering, etc., And then there's the speed race style, the Taito speed race style, which is straight track, 
goes on forever. You get the illusion of scrolling. Other cars appear. You have to dodge the other cars as you drive down the straight track. So this three-in-one cartridge contained versions of both of these. It had a game called Speedway, which was the speed race element. And then it had a game called Spin Out, which was the grand track element. Then because they have the keyboard, they also included a game that specifically took advantage of that keyboard called CryptoLogic, which was kind of a word scramble game decoding mixed up letters and stuff. So, you know, there's phrases and you have to try to take these nonsense phrases and retype them out so that they mean something. That was the third game in this three games in one package. Then they had a pretty robust lineup because they did have an internal game design team and they did have that internal game design team make games. It's just that once they had all those initial games done, they got weird again and decided to get rid of all the programmers. So they had, you know, the other common categories. They had some sports games. They had a golf, a basketball, and a football game. They had a blackjack game. All of the early systems had casino games, you know, card games. I guess part of the logic of that is that it was something that maybe adults could latch on to. Adults like card games. We've got the arcade games for the kids. You have the sports games that maybe the kids will play and maybe the parents will play the games with their kids. You have the card games to give something that maybe the adults will latch on to. And then you always have an educational cartridge or two because we want to justify this purchase as not just screwing around with games because it's a lot of money and we want to pretend that there's an educational value to having one. So then they had a two-in-one educational cartridge that had a math game, Math and Magic, and then a game very much like Milton Bradley's Simon called Echo. That's the launch lineup. It launches in September. Like everybody else, there were two certainties about video game development in the late 1970s. And Magnavox was hit by both of them. Certainty one we already talked about. Your fancy custom chip will never be ready on time. You will be delayed. Number two is that the FCC will give you crap about your product. And you are going to launch late and in low quantities because you can't pass FCC testing. Magnavox had the same problem. They were late on FCC approval because they were late on FCC approval. They couldn't ship because they couldn't ship. They were not able to get into the major department store chains because by the time they were shipping, the major department store chains had basically already made their orders for the holiday season. They weren't interested in making more orders. And at this period of time, the department store was still king in video games. Very soon, it would broaden out in toy stores and discount stores, by which I mean places like Walmart, Kmart, would become equally, if not more important than the department stores. But in the very beginning, the department stores were the bastion of home video games, and Magnavox was mostly shut out of the department stores in 78 because of late FCC approval. They ship around 100,000 systems, which isn't horrific, but isn't great either. I mean, Atari shipped north of 300,000 systems in its first holiday, (laughs) just by example. But they managed to do better than Fairchild that was also screwed over by the FCC and only got 50,000 systems out. So just as the system fell between Fairchild and Atari in price, it also kind of fell between Fairchild and Atari in how it managed to have a launch in that first holiday season. Though, just to make sure people are clear on the timeline, 
these three systems are not launching side by side to each other. The Fairchild system came out in 76, Atari 77, Magnavox 78. All right, so you've got a system, you've got some games for it, you've got a market that's going kind of meh, and you have nobody to create any future games for you. And you have no one really championing the system. So what's your future in a situation like that? It almost sounds like they wouldn't have any future. But Mike Staup really did believe in video games. This is the guy that you may recall is in charge of the interactive devices division that the Magnavox now falls under. So he's determined to keep it going. And he lucks out in that he is able to make a deal with an outside contractor to continue making games for the system. And that is a gentleman by the name of Ed Averett. Ed Averett was an electrical engineer from Tennessee, or at least he graduated from the University of Tennessee. Knoxville, Tennessee is where the manufacturing and game development for the Odyssey actually goes on. So he's got a connection there. But he actually becomes a marketer at Intel and becomes part of the sales and support staff for microprocessors. So Averett is very aware of the Odyssey project from near the beginning of it, because when Intel and Magnavox are making deals to you know, do the chipset for the Odyssey, he's dialed into what's going on there because that's part of the business that he's in on the Intel side. He sees a golden opportunity here. He figures that it's a really good idea for Intel to have a project using Intel chips be successful because that will really bolster Intel's business. And of course, that's absolutely true because what makes Intel the dominant chip company in all of existence? Microsoft. Yeah, well, yes, but the fact that they get their product, their chip into the IBM PC. Uh, and so he was he recognized that having a real hot product and something consumer oriented would probably be a good thing for the company. And he thought that the best way that he could help facilitate that was not by being a salesman for Intel, but by actually quitting, going into business with his wife, Linda, who's also an engineer, and actually making games for this Odyssey system. He thought that he could do a pretty good job of doing some game design and game programming for the Odyssey. So he leaves Intel to become an independent contractor. He approaches Staup at the uh, 1978 CES, January. And they enter into a game development relationship. Averett does not join Magnavox, but he becomes an exclusive independent contractor creating games for Magnavox. And he knows the Intel chips very well because he learned all about them from the Intel side. He doesn't produce any games for that first holiday release. That's all internal Magnavox stuff. But after all the internal programmers are cut, Staup is able to argue for retaining Averett as an independent contractor and letting him make games. So in 1979, there are an additional 11 games released by Magnavox for the Odyssey 2, and almost all of them come from Averett. First one he does is a maze game called Take the Money and Run. He does a shooting game called Invaders from Hyperspace that is not a Space Invaders clone. It doesn't look anything like Space Invaders, but it's, it's a shooting action-y game. Uh, he does an alpine skiing game. He does a sports cartridge with a hockey and a soccer game that's kind of ball and paddle-like, but actually has human figures, the generic human figures, but still human figures. And he creates a bunch of other games, and a lot of the games he creates are unique in their approach 
like Invaders from Hyperspace, it's a shooting game, but it's really unlike the shooting games that are on some of the other systems. Take the Money and Run is a maze game, pre-Pac-Man. You know, it's really not like Pac-Man. It's it's really kind of different from that. We'll, of course, put some of these games in the show notes so that you can see what we're talking about. They keep some games going. They keep the system kind of alive. But it only sells 125,000 units in 1979, which at this point is really not all that great. Now, the home market doesn't really take off until Space Invaders in 1980. So it's not ridiculously terrible or anything. But just for context, by 1979, basically Atari and Magnavox are the only games in town. Fairchild's fallen off, RCA's long gone, APF, Bally with their Astrocade, they're still kind of hanging into the market on the margins, but none of them have much business. So Magnavox is essentially by default Atari's primary competition. And there is nobody else. Intellivision has a test market in late 79, but they're not there yet. And so even though there's only two around, Atari sells 600,000, Magnavox sells 125,000. I think a lot of that has to do, quite frankly, with the fact that Atari takes the business seriously. They start marketing year-round. They do big, expensive advertising campaigns. And they already have kind of the cachet of being in the arcade and being a recognizable name in games. So they just take the majority of the market. Magnavox doesn't do as much advertising, doesn't do nearly the TV advertising. They have half-hearted, upper-level management on the whole video game thing. They don't try to do this whole same year-round thing that Atari's doing. And so it just kind of fizzles. You know, the dance kind of continues. And really, they stay in the market. They stay in this whole period. And they start getting better sales because as the video game market as a whole gets bigger, a rising tide lifts all boats. So Magnavox does stay in it, but they're already an also-ran by the end of 1979. 1980 is just kind of more of the same. Averett's making some games for them. They're still hanging in the market. But they spend about $1 million on advertising. Atari spends $8 million on advertising. Mattel, which is only just getting into the market for real at the end of 1980, spends $3.5 million on advertising. And they're not even in all year nationwide. So, I mean, Magnavox just isn't promoting this thing. They're not bothering. And so they only sell 160,000 more units in 1980. They sold 125,000. These are all estimates, of course. I don't have internal documents, but this is what market analysts at the time were saying, just to be clear. They sold 125,000 systems in 1979. They sell 160,000 systems in 1980. That's barely a jump. They're spending nothing on marketing, and they're not getting results. They have two companies with much bigger names, Atari and Video Games, Mattel and Toys, that are just spending a lot on advertising. They're getting interesting spokespeople. Atari doesn't use spokespeople, but Mattel is using George Plimpton and has those famous commercials where they're comparing Atari and a television products to show it in television superior. And Magnavox is just kind of just sitting there at the bottom of the market being like, nah, I'm doing my thing. It's just a little part of a little division. In early 1981, Magnavox finally goes away entirely. Phillips has finally had enough of them. You're going away. 
It's not so much that. What happens is they purchase some assets from GTE Sylvania. Uh, Sylvania was another one of the major television companies. At this point, Phillips acquires parts of GTE Sylvania, and now that they have these disparate North American elements, they smush them all together, and Magnavox ceases to exist as a company. They still use the brand. The Magnavox brand still appears on products, including the Odyssey. But now they're North American Philips. Staup is still in charge of interactive devices, but it's no longer Magnavox. It's North American Philips as of like February 1981. You know, they continue to be just lost amidst this bureaucracy that doesn't care about them. Staup does keep things going, though. Avrid keeps things going. And they, they try to get really inventive to keep things going. Avrid starts doing some very kind of different kind of games in 1981 some of which are actually quite interesting. One thing that Averett noticed is they would get a lot of letters from parents basically saying, you know, we try to play these games with our children, these reflex, these action-y games. You know, we can't really keep up with our children. Couldn't we have some kind of strategy element to some of these games to kind of level the playing field a little bit? And so Avrid actually decides to start a line of hybrid board and video games. Sort of harkening back to the original roots of the Odyssey, where it really was just a board game with this glorious little box thing that was interactive. Sort of, except, uh, you know, I mean, they did use additional elements in the Odyssey, and one of the games, Invasion, even had a board. But most of the action was still on the screen, such as the action was. This was actually a full board game with a very nice, handsome board, playing pieces, cards, all of these things, where you're playing heroes that are trying to locate these 10 rings in this fantasy world. But when it came time to have encounters with monsters and enemies, you would switch over to the video game and the video game would be used to do the fighting. So there was this strategic element on the board and then this reflex element on the screen. And the idea was to combine these things and make it easier for families to enjoy games together. They created this game, this master strategy series, and the first and and most significant game of that was Quest for the Ring. Obviously a very heavily Lord of the Rings inspired fantasy game. So of course we'll put that in the show notes. That's a very interesting idea. It's not an idea that ever really caught on. But kudos for Staup and Averett trying to do interesting things and trying to keep the system relevant, even when they're getting no support, essentially, as far as I can tell, within the company. Now, the biggest thing that happens for the company, though, in 1981, and this is a big thing in video games generally, it's kind of the one thing that Magnavox is really, or the Odyssey 2, I should say, is really still known for today. In February 1981, Averett and Staup are on a layover at an airport somewhere in the United States. And for the first time, they behold a little arcade game called Pac-Man. By this time, they had been doing some cloning of popular arcade games. For instance, they created a game called UFO that was essentially a clone of Asteroids. So they were already in this business, and they saw Pac-Man, and they were like, this is incredible. I mean, everyone said Pac-Man was incredible. Pac-Man fever. But, you know, there was a real 
I think largely because Namco really did not expect the game to be a hit worldwide, and they did not. They did not expect the game to be successful in the United States. It got a lukewarm reaction in Japan, and it was considered way too cutesy for the U.S. market. So there was a real lag in a home version being released. Atari finally gets the rights and releases Pac-Man in spring 1982. We talked about that as recently as our ET episode just a couple back. That's a real lag because that game came out in late 1980. And there wasn't an official licensed home version until 1982. So Staup saw a real opportunity here. Because it's not just, oh, hey, we can clone Pac-Man. That's an awesome looking game. There is not a console version of Pac-Man. If we move fast, we could have a Pac-Man-like game on our system before Atari, before Mattel, before any of them. And this might be popular enough that it moves system. Just like today, you have those exclusive titles for the PlayStation, for the Xbox, for the Switch, and people buy the console just for the game. Right. They see a real opportunity here. So very soon afterwards, uh, in May, the Averitts, Ed and Lisa, start work on their version of things. They knew that they shouldn't just copy Pac-Man. I mean... Aside from the legal issues and just copying Pac-Man, they feel that they have to do something to set themselves apart. Averitt basically wants to scrap it entirely. I mean, he wants to keep the very vague ideas of you're in a maze, you're being chased, you're collecting things. But he wants to completely turn it on its head and make it very different, which, uh, you know, if you look back at some of the other games that we've put in the show notes, you'll see that he is often doing things that are different from the mainstream designs. Stout doesn't want that. Stout basically wants a Pac-Man clone, you know, just change the characters slightly so there's no infringement and then put out basically Pac-Man. They end up compromising in the middle. It's a maze game. You have a guy running around. He's being chased by other guys running around. But instead of there being 240 dots in the maze like Pac-Man, there's only 12. And the dots actually move some during the course of the game. So you can't just chart a path. Sometimes you have to change where you're going based on what the dots are doing. They did keep the idea that some of the the dots are so-called power pills, and when you eat them, you can turn the tables on your pursuers. So they kept that. So it's very similar, but it's also somewhat different because there's so few dots and the dots move. Originally, they called the game Munchkin for rather obvious reasons. They wanted a cute-looking protagonist, so they have a small squat protagonist, kind of like a munchkin. And, of course, munch, because you're eating things, just like in Pac-Man, so munchkin makes sense. It ended up being KC Munchkin, because Stout joked with Kenneth Minkin at uh, some point, I don't know exactly when, that they would name the character after him. So uh, his name was Kenneth C. Minkin. They took his initials, KC, and Munchkin became KC Munchkin. So that game was released in August 1981 and was selling very well for an Odyssey 2 game. Well, in April 1981, Atari had secured the rights to Pac-Man. They didn't release it till spring 1982, but they were the rights holders now. And they were not happy that this game had jumped the gun on them. So Atari and Midway, because Midway had the coin-op rights from Namco, joined together to sue North American Phillips in late 1981. So there's some confusion about this lawsuit. I think a lot of people don't realize uh, that have heard of this suit, Atari v. uh, North American Phillips, is that 
there was never a final judgment in the case. I don't know exactly what happened to the case because the legal records that we have, because uh, Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, has pulled these case files out of Chicago because he lives up there and this case was done in Chicago. We have transcripts and we have a very small number of depositions and uh, we have a few other things. But those documents don't show what finally happened to the case. It probably ended in a settlement. But there was a decision in the case. It just wasn't a final judgment. What happened is Atari sued. And of course, as part of the suit, Atari wants a temporary injunction. They want North American Phillips to not be able to sell the game until the suit is decided. And then either it's found to be infringing and they can never sell it again, or it's found not to be infringing and then they can put it on the market. But they don't want it sold during the case. Well, Phillips, of course, needs to be selling it during the darn case. Because, you know, video games, it's a hits-driven business. You release your game, your game's popular for a few months, then popularity trails off, people move on to the next thing. If they remove this from the store shelves now, they're done. Even if they win the case... By the time they win the case, it'll be too late. They won't make any money at that point because other games will have come out. Real licensed Pac-Man will have come out. It'll be over. So Phillips, of course, fights the preliminary injunction. Basically, in an infringement case, the standard that you have to pass to show infringement is what's called the substantial similarity test, which in its most simplest form means you have to show that the product that you are suing over is substantially similar to your own product. In order to have an injunction granted, you have to show that you are likely to succeed on the merits of the case, that a reasonable judge or jury might conclude that there truly was infringement, and you have to show that there would be irreparable harm if that product were allowed to be on the market while you're adjudicating the case. So the irreparable harm, it works two ways, just as if Phillips is not allowed to sell the product in these coming months, people are going to forget about the game by the time they can sell it. So too, is Atari going to lose future sales of its own Pac-Man game if Casey Munchkin has already penetrated the market, people decide they like it, and they don't feel like they now need to buy Pac-Man because they own Casey Munchkin. So at the trial level, Atari asks for an injunction. North American Phillips says, no, 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 we can't have that. The judge rules that it's not clear that Atari is going to succeed on the merits. 12 pills versus 240, different-looking characters, pills move around, there's enough differences. There's definitely going to be harm to Phillips from the injunction during the period of time that they will be enjoined from selling. So he actually says, no, I'm not going to grant an injunction in this case. Atari appeals, and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals applies this that same substantial similarity test and decides, no, these games are very similar. There is a likelihood that Atari will succeed on the merits. We are going to let the injunction stand. There is going to be an injunction during this case. A lot of people read that as kind of a landmark decision that kind of sets a standard for video game copying, a standard that would be quickly overturned in a case that follows. We talked about some of this in our video game litigation episode. I mean, in a way it did, because the Court of Appeals did look at those two and decided that there was a good chance that there would be infringement. So you could argue, well, if the Seventh Circuit thought there was a good chance here, then there's also a good chance here, yada, yada. But they didn't actually rule that there was infringement. There was no ruling that infringement had occurred. 
all that happened is a court said, yes, you can have an injunction because we think you very well may win. At the trial level, we have the transcript. Atari really focused on the fact that Magnavox, North American Phillips, advertised Casey Munchkin as a Pac-Man-like game. They weren't really focused on the games themselves, I think, because there were enough differences. But they were like, look at how this is being advertised. It's being advertised as something for people that are looking for a Pac-Man game. It's being advertised as something, can't get Pac-Man, get Casey Munchkin. So they're saying, see, they are clearly trying to intermingle and confuse our products, and there's similarities, and we've got to stop them. Trial court wasn't convinced, the appellate court was, but it wasn't a final ruling. Like I said, I think they finally settled the case a year or so later, by which time it was too late for Magnavox to do anything with Casey Munchkin anyway. It's an interesting case. It's a landmark case. We talked about it, I think, in our litigation episode as well. It just doesn't mean quite what people think it does. The point is, though, that this was kind of the last best hope for Magnavox, North American Phillips, to really make a mark, and they were denied that opportunity. Now, was Casey Munchkin going to single-handedly turn around the fortunes of Magnavox and suddenly make them the greatest console ever? No. The console was really showing its age by this point. We have a third-party market now, and the third parties basically ignore the Odyssey. And Magic makes like one game for the Odyssey, but literally the reason they did that is that they were trying to stop Magnavox North American Phillips from suing them like they were suing everybody else. That's the reason they did it. They didn't think there was much of a, a market for Odyssey 2 third-party product, but they were like, well, if we make a game or two for them, maybe they'll leave us alone. Activision never makes a game for them. All these other fly-by-nights never make a game for them. So it's a primitive system. It doesn't have all that much going for it. They're still not supporting it well. Third parties don't want to touch it. They're dead in the water whether Casey Munchkin is successful or not. But the Casey Munchkin debacle is kind of the final insult on top of injury (laughs) to what they're doing. Now, they still have a decent year in 1981, actually. They sell about half a million systems. But that's really more a testament to how the entire market has grown and the entire market has overheated. Can't get an Atari system, can't get a Mattel system. Well, I guess I'll go get a Magnavox system. Maybe some people that bought it for Casey Munchkin in the brief period of time it was on sale. So half a million is much better than it had done. That's a huge increase from uh, 160,000. But it still only represents about 10% of the market. I mean, they are a very distant third to Atari and Mattel. They're a little closer to Mattel than they are to Atari because Atari is lapping everybody. Still, that puts them a distant third. And then, of course, Coleco is about to come in the next year, and that's going to relegate them to a distant fourth because <laughs> the Coleco is a much more interesting system than the uh, the Magnavox system as well. So where does that leave us at the end here? They do put a few more resources into it. They hire a couple of internal guys, Bob Harris and Sam Overton, to start making some games. In Europe, they have a little more of a wide-open market. Remember, Philips is a European country. They have a little bit of success marketing the system in some European countries where they don't have as fierce a competition. I wouldn't say that it does big business anywhere. They market it under the Philips brand, which means something Mm -hmm. (laughs) in Europe. They market it as the Video Pack G7000 in Europe. They actually contract with some European developers to make games for it. I don't think it does great there. There's there's this figures that float around, and they're literally just floating around. That it sold a million in the United States, and it sold 
a million in Europe. I've never seen an actual legitimate European figure anywhere. I think a million in the United States is probably generously rounding up because we know that it only sold maybe what 750,000 consoles yeah give or take give or take by the 1981 time frame and its sales were probably in decline after that so you know my guess is it's shy of a million, and to reach a million, you're rounding up that it's like 850,000 or something, and people round it up to a million, which is a bit grievous when you have such small figures you're dealing with in the first place. I don't think it probably quite reached a million, and I'm very skeptical that it reached a million in Europe. I really doubt that happened. It did a little bit of business in Europe. They did start up a little more game development. They started working on some next-generation stuff. Voice got really big here for a moment because the speak and spell was so popular and speech synthesis chips were starting. So they experimented with doing some voice stuff. They started working on an updated system that saw a very limited release in Europe as the Video Pack 7400 and would have been released in the US as the Odyssey 3 or the Odyssey Cubed, uh, still the small superscript thing. They were looking at doing something. It was going to be the same chip, but at a higher clock speed. It was going to have a lot more RAM, six kilobytes of RAM, instead of being measured in bytes. It was going to have about double the screen resolution. It was going to be what was considered high resolution at that time, which was not very high, 320 by 238, which still put it much higher than the original Odyssey, which was only at a 160 by 200 resolution. And it was going to have built-in voice, because voice was kind of sexy at the time. It was still going to have a keyboard. It was going to be a slightly nicer keyboard, but still not a great keyboard. They were kind of fiddling around with this thing, but then the crash happened. And that kills everything. Yeah, and Magnavox had no stomach to stay in it at that point, or I should say North American Phillips had no stomach to stay in it at that point. You know, it just kind of sputters out in the end. It feels like we were building, 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 and then just dissipating. But, I mean, that's really kind of what happened. They were running a distant third. They were kind of hanging in. They weren't spending much. They weren't making much, but they were there. They had some interesting ideas, but they were never committed to the business. And as soon as things turned south, they got out and never looked back. That was just the end of it. Magnavox brand continued on. For a while longer, under the North American Phillips label, it continued on into the 1990s, appearing on televisions and that kind of thing. Various electronics, not necessarily video games. Yeah, right, not video games, just, you know, televisions and whatnot. It still exists, I guess, as a Phillips brand. But, I mean, there's really not much to say. It's, it's a brand. I mean, it's not like it's really a, a company. They hold on to it. They slap it on certain products, but they don't really care. Pretty much. It's a cool name. Maybe those old people will go, oh, yeah, I remember Magnavox. Here, take my money. <laughs> right. There's still a Magnavox website, for instance. You can still get Magnavox products. It's just not what it was. They just kind of 
Just like this episode, they just kind of trailed off and died a quiet, unlamented death. Well, unlike Phillips, I can put a kibosh and put it out of its misery. <laughs> yep, anyway, so that's Magnavox. First in video games, longest in video games at the time they left. But of course, now far since eclipsed by companies that may have come in later, but stayed around and committed to it a whole lot longer. Since we've have expended our loud voice, <laughs> what will we do in our February 1st episode? After that kind of somber of a thing, we should do something a little more fun and a little more funny. Like LucasArts graphic adventure games. So, yeah, we'll, we'll take a, a dive into the early LucasArts graphic adventures and kind of what made them special. Maniac Mansion, Zack McCracken, Monkey Island, Day of the Tentacle. And uh, have some fun. Have a nice, light-hearted discussion about some really kind of special games that came out in a, in a moment in time in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. Sounds like a plan to me. We'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 